If one theme applies to the federal career of my next guest, it might be innovation. In both civilian and military situations, she's brought new technology and new approaches to mission support. Now she's been inducted into the National Academy of Public Administration. The Chief Information Officer of the Air Force Research Laboratory, Alexis Bunnell, joins me now. Ms. Bunnell, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I think of the Air Force Research Laboratory as the conduit for the latest in technology for the Air Force. Let's begin with right now. What are some of the projects you're working on? What's at the top of the list right now? As you can imagine, digital and all of the innovation within it is absolutely paramount to our national security and to you know the paradigm that we find ourselves in the world globally. And so I have the distinct honor really of working not only across the Air Force Research Lab, you know, which means both Air Force and Space Force, which is incredible, right, to have a role where you get to work with two organizations. Um, but really our goal is to measurably accelerate and generate the transition, in essence, adoption-ready technology to demonstrate military benefits benefit and relevance. And so that could be everything from how we make better scientific discoveries in the area of hypersonics or satellites or cyber, all the way to just how do we reduce the toil so that our airmen and civilians are able to just be more effective and quite frankly, more passionate about their work every day. So there's a machine and a human aspect to this. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I think that's really where we find ourselves in the world right now is that great kind of interconnection between our relationship with technology as humans. And you apparently like being a dweller on the latest, because let's go back to earlier in your career, back in the 90s, you were part of the Internet Trade Association. Tell us about that and what that was and what you learned there. First of all, it was really exciting. I, I joke with some people that I've been in the internet longer than they've had email accounts, right? And it's actually quite true. So, you know, back in the 90s, there was the Internet Trade Association. And, and really my job, which was so fascinating to reflect on now, Tom, was to go to places like Fortune 500 companies and kind of say, hey, there's this thing, the internet, and it's going to change how you do business. And one of the things I love to chuckle the most about right now is quite frankly, you know, early in that mission, not many people were interested. American Express and American Airlines, you know, they responded kind of saying, well, we think it's a fad. We don't really see how it's going to impact our business. And you can imagine just a short few months after that kind of being invited back, tell us more, right? Say more about this thing. It doesn't seem to be going away. So I think the great element of maybe cutting my teeth in that role is in some levels, you just become quite fascinated with what's next. Your curiosity engine really doesn't stop. And so I was lucky, I think, to come into a role where really kind of looking at Head and helping organizations and people kind of understand how is this relevant to me? What does this technology mean? And that translation is really probably my great joy. You could say the internet had as much effect on the airlines as the jet engine did, really, if you look at it. You know, Absolutely. Probably term. even more when we start looking at Christmas disruptions, right? Or, or the power of those things in our daily lives. And I guess let's go back even a further step. Tell us about the background that led to your being part of the Internet Trade Association. Sure. So, you know, what was really interesting is as I was growing up, my family business was in kind of direct marketing. And back in, you know, in the early 90s and 80s, as people will remember, we got things like catalogs, right, and mailers. And at that point in time, it was really quite sexy to be a brand advertiser, right, to have the Nike swoosh and to be kind of in that realm of communications and advertising. But what I think was a really interesting gift my dad gave me you know, looking at direct marketing was this idea of 
what does it look like to be able to test and measure, right, an interaction with someone, an appeal of something? And so that idea of being able to experiment, right, to see did that get a response? Is that something that is going to drive a sale or a conversion really got me, I think, early hooked into this idea of being able to measure the impact of something or to understand the power of engagement. And so, you know, as the internet kind of emerged, it was like all of those things on steroids. It was like, okay, all of a sudden we can have a direct relationship. We can have a different relationship with information and knowledge and we can measure it. And I think that measurement becomes really powerful, whether you are a commercial company worried about selling things or whether you are, you know, a government hoping that a population is taking advantage of a benefit or service that you have. I think as good public leaders, we all want to understand is what we're doing having an impact. Can we measure it? And I think that was a little bit of where my roots came from. Interesting. Yes, you could never prove that someone actually laid their eyeballs on a printed page, but you could sure know if that website got clicked on. I know it changed my career a great deal when the economics of publishing changed. We're speaking with Jennifer Bunnell. She is the chief information officer at the Air Force Research Laboratory, director of its Digital Capabilities Directorate, and a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. And let's fast forward. You were at the U.S. Agency for International Development, and you were the uh, premier innovation lab, global development lab founder there. Tell us about that stop. Absolutely. I mean, what an incredible, you know, honor at the time, Uh, you know, the administration was really leaning into innovation across all levels. And of course, there had been entities like DARPA and many others that had deep history, but from an international development or diplomacy lens, there really hadn't been the same type of innovation focus and work. And so I, along with a number of colleagues at USAID, had the great privilege of kind of starting, you know, an innovation and science lab there, being able to really make USAID's mission permeable to science, to academia, to, you know, private sector partnerships. And quite frankly, it was such a wonderful exercise in what I would call humble curiosity, right? Being able to start with that moment of maybe we don't know everything, maybe we don't have all the solutions in government, and it would sure be neat to be able to match resources with that kind of collective global genius. And so in kicking off the development lab, it wasn't just an exercise in finding, funding, and deploying new ways of addressing education, you know, uh, democracy, health issues. It was also a journey of culture around how is it that we spread that humble curiosity? How is it that we make it more easy to work with us? for outside players. And um, it was just an honor to learn a lot along the way. That's a big issue. You know, you have been involved in dual-use technologies that have commercial and military application, but really the difficulty is not the application. It's convincing sometimes those companies, yes, you actually do want to do business with the Air Force or the Defense Department, and then they see what's involved there and maybe (laughs) second-guess you on it. Absolutely. I mean, and I think this is where it's exciting to be in a role like I get to serve in right now, because a lot of this is actually how do we make it easier, right? So of course, there's larger questions on procurement and acquisition and how we move those resources, which a number of my colleagues are really advancing as far as programs like AppWorks and others. But for me, it's also a question of how do we participate with knowledge together, right? And so putting together digital structures where we can share research data, where we can collaborate 
collaborate more easily, right, with players that may not have, you know, securely, but with players that might not have the access to some of our internal networks, et cetera. And so really thinking about that challenge of how do we maintain all the security elements that we obviously need, but how do we just make it easier, you know, again, to collaborate? And that's where I think a lot of the tools we have now are just at a fundamentally different place than they were even a few years ago. So it's quite neat to see our interaction with allies and other things growing. And your bio mentions a lot of units besides the Air Force Research Laboratory. There's well-known names now in the Defense Innovation Enterprise, if you want to call it that. AFWorks, you mentioned Kessel Run, Naval X, Marine Innovation Unit, Army Futures Command. It goes on and on and on. DARPA. Is there any mechanism among that network, I guess it's an informal network, to make sure you're not duplicating effort? Oh, goodness. I think, you know, the first is just having that network of other human beings who tick and who really want to kind of be on that exploratory edge and quite frankly, learning from each other. I think that there are certainly informal networks. There's formal networks like Federal Innovation Council and others that I've gotten to participate in and I'm lucky enough to sit in now. I think that this is something, though, where in some ways it's really interesting, right, because we don't want to duplicate. But what I tend to find is that often there's a slightly different flavor or a slightly different focus that we might be doing that seems at the top level of the definition to be duplicative. But when you get down to it, it might be, well, I'm looking at that technology, for example, for a multi-security level, and you might be looking at it, you know, from a different lens. So I think what's really exciting is, again, that ability to bring in those collaborators, those discoverers, researchers, principal investigators, to be part of a community that has that conversation. And I know when I have gotten the great privilege of kind of working or contributing to any of those groups, sometimes the most interesting conversation is, how is it that we function as people? What are their tricks around culture or around administration or resourcing that actually advance each other's work even more than a particular discovery? It seems like the trend in a lot of the innovation, and you can say this of artificial intelligence, is not to try to replace the human with some robotic in the military. They don't envision that ever happening, actually, but really to augment what the people the precious commodity, the hard-to-acquire-and-maintain commodity, which is the service members, enabling them to do more with surrounding augmentation technologies. Well, Tom, and I actually love the fact that you use the word augmentation because AI, you know, being able to spend some time at Google as well, AI was a definite geek out area for me. It's one of my big areas of passion, but specifically because I think what AI does, and I wish it was called augmented intelligence instead of artificial. So maybe you and I can, can start a trend on that. But it really is, um, you know, kind of the next level of technology that just ultimately changes our relationship with knowledge. And knowledge and interacting with knowledge is a human journey we've been on for a long time. It's one we'll continue to be on. But what I always tell people as an example with AI in particular, and, and I you know, had previously kind of donated a lot of time to AI 101 classes for leaders and others, because it's important that we understand the relationship with the technology. But one of the great examples that I found really useful as I started to think about the technology is I think about you know, AI or augmenting my intelligence, you know, and it's an example with some of the generative AI tools, almost a little bit like having a really great intern, meaning or, or a thousand great interns, right, where I might kind of say, hey, I'm interested in this, go collect this information for me, right, surface this knowledge, bring it to me. But it's not like I would take that, you know, not read it, throw my logo on it and, and send it outside. 
like any great experience with knowledge, I'm going to take that in. I'm going to see, does it resonate with my expertise and my experience, right? I might hone, you know, it. but that process of curation of knowledge, I think, is really what is an exciting thing to be confronted with. And the reality is that as humans, these are tools that do what we tell them to do with the information we tell them to use. And so that business of curation, that business of knowledge, I think, is a really exciting place to be. And the technology is only letting us ask bigger questions now. And a final question. You have served in some challenging areas of the world as a practitioner of technology. So in some sense, you've got a chance to really taste the importance, if you will, and the criticality of defense technologies and and innovative ways of getting things done in rough parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, quite frankly, I've been I've been shot. I've lost colleagues to uh, cafe bombings and kidnappings and incursions and have been there in places like Afghanistan, Iraq and many other challenging locations. And so for me, this ability to serve not only at AFRL, but to be a public servant is a very intimate and full, you know, fully meaningful and powerful opportunity to contribute not only to, you know, the incredible people out there right now who are risking their lives and standing up for our nation's values, but even more importantly to the people that I have lost along the way, right, in service to those missions. And so it's it's just a deep honor to be able to find ways to continue to serve their memories and the people who are doing this every day. Alexis Bonnell is the Chief Information Officer at the Air Force Research Laboratory and Director of its Digital Capabilities Directorate, and she's a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So, again, that they feel they can 
bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. 
and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years, and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.